Good morning to all of you, and I'm very happy to be here. I appreciate Dr. Easley's inviting me. His verse-by-verse -verse exposition is a rare thing in this area, and so many people want to receive that and to be taught in that way. And so it's a pleasure for me to come and be able to be a part of that from time to time as well. I was born in 1952, so I was raised by World War II veterans. My um, uh, Sunday school teachers, my school teachers, my coaches, everybody, you know, they had come back from the war and they didn't talk much about it. I didn't know that some of them were decorated heroes until much later. But, um, but this was the era that I grew up in, and so I'm interested in World War II. And I read recently about a man named George Weiss, who was, his parents were German, but they moved to Hungary. So he grew up in Hungary, and when Hitler began invading through Europe, he was conscripted to wear a German uniform and to fight for the Nazis. And eventually, in 1945, he was arrested by the Russians and placed in a POW camp. This camp had one area for the Hungarians and one area for the Germans. And the Hungarians were treated much better. The, Rus uh, the Russians treated the German soldiers with tremendous brutality. And George Weiss was Hungarian, but he was with the Germans. He was wearing a German uniform. And he kept going to the prison authorities and saying, I am not German. I am not German. I am Hungarian. And they didn't believe him. But finally, one of them said, if you are Hungarian, then quote the Lord's Prayer in your native tongue. And he knew the Lord's Prayer because he had grown up going to village churches. And he said the Lord's Prayer perfectly in Hungarian. And they said, well, you are Hungarian. After all, they moved him over to the other side of the fence. The German soldiers eventually were all killed. The Hungarian soldiers were eventually all set free. It was his knowing the Lord's Prayer that saved his life. Now, it's very important for us to know the Lord's Prayer. And I have a tremendous burden right now that people are not learning it or praying it, that children are not learning it, and that scripture memory overall has sort of been forgotten by the church. I have Carson Outlaw with me who is uh, uh, traveling with me today, and a few years ago we went to Arkansas. I had to speak there, and he drove me, or to um, Branson, wasn't it? Branson, Missouri. And on the way there, he began quoting things to me, not from the Bible, but he has a phenomenal memory. And I said, well, quote the Bible to me. Do you remember this? And he said, I've not been memorizing the Bible. What did I call you? A dog? Oh, the scum of the earth. I said, if you have... <laughs> he remembers. I said, if you have that phenomenal a memory and you're not memorizing Scripture, you're <laughs> the scum of the earth. I don't know why I said that. But, he, but now he can stand up here and he could quote massive amounts of Scripture for you. Well, at least we ought to learn the Lord's Prayer and to say it with our children. And so this is the uh, passage we're coming to. It's found in Matthew chapter 6, 
and I'd like to invite you to turn there with me, and we'll begin reading with verse number 8, Matthew 6 and verse number 8, and then I'll review briefly from last week, and then we will continue on and finish out our study. So Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 8, therefore do not be like them, in other words, don't be like the, he's referring to the scribes and Pharisees that were um, uh, praying pretentiously. For your father knows the things that you have need of before you need them. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our uh, debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Last week I said that the Lord's Prayer is like walking through a castle, the palace of prayer, we can go from one room to the other. We can stay in every room as long as we want to. But Jesus here gives us the architecture of prayer. And we begin in the nursery with our Father. This was radical in our Lord's day. Because you can go through the Psalms of David, and the Lord is never referred to there in, uh, in prayer as our Father. There is one time... When it says, like a father pities his children, the Lord pities his children. But it's an analogy. The psalmist never addressed God in such intimate, familiar terms. But then here Jesus comes, and his first recorded words are, I must be about my father's business. And he would say, my father this, and my father that, and my father and I, and my father has done me, and my father has sent me, and then he gave us the privilege of adopting his terminology and sharing in his relationship and talking to God not only as a mighty sovereign on a glorious throne, but as our Abba Father. For through Christ we are adopted into God's family. So that's the nursery. And then we go up to the observatory and say, who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. And we go from the intimate to the infinite, and we just spend some time relishing the glory, the marvelous matchlessness of our Lord, to whom we are speaking, that our Father dwells in another dimension, in another place in heaven, and yet he sees, he hears, he knows, he is with us, and his name is holy. And then we go from there to the throne room. Thy kingdom come. And I said last week that with the Lord's two comings, he ushers in two kingdoms. With his first coming, he ushered in the kingdom of his church on this planet. When he comes again, he will usher in the geopolitical kingdom that will last for a thousand years on this earth. So we say the kingdom is already, but not yet. So when we say, Lord, your kingdom come, we are on the one hand praying for our evangelistic and missionary efforts that God's kingdom here on earth now will grow. 
and that we will be good citizens of the kingdom and good ambassadors for the king. But we're also praying, Lord, even so, come. Come quickly. Come as you have promised. So it's a wonderful prayer, both for now and for later. And so that was last week. Now let's go to the fourth room in this castle, and that is the office. We say, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get down to business. We say, Lord, you have a plan for my life. It involves what I'm doing today. And I want to do today what you want me to do just as faithfully as your holy angels in heaven do what you command them to do. Now, this is a very personal prayer. I really believe that God has a plan for every one of our lives. When I was in college, the motto that I adopted for my yearbook caption said, The will of God, nothing more, nothing less. And it says in the Bible, Psalm 116, Psalm 139, verse 16, says, You saw me before I was born, and you scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. And it's so wonderful to know that God has a daily plan for us. It may be a good day, it may be a bad day, it may be an easy day, it may be a hard day, it may be a cloudy day, it may be a sunny day, but every day is preordained by God. And we simply have to say, Lord, your will be done. What you have ordained for me today, that's what I want to do. What do you want me to do today? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is true for our entire lives. I mean, he has a lifelong will for us. I had a friend named Fred Hersey, who was a wonderful missionary in Japan. And I visited him and his wife, Evelyn, once. They lived on the backside of a northern island. It was very, very cold in the winter. Um, and they lived in a very small house. Everything in Japan is, you know, sort of miniature because there are so many people crammed onto that island. And the only place for me to sleep that week was underneath their dining room table. And they made me a very nice bed there. But I asked Fred, how did you come to give your life to the Lord? He said, I grew up in Chicago in a very wonderful church. I went every Sunday. I do not remember any of the sermons. But against the back wall, there was a scripture. And the scripture was, Whosoever doeth the will of God abides forever. And he said, every Sunday I would look up and read that. I came to learn it very quickly, and it became my life's motto. And it should be our life's motto to say, Lord, whatever it is that you want me to do, then I am absolutely yours. We used to call this full surrender. And there's a song that says, I surrender all. And it is something we perpetually do. But then it's not just like a lifelong attitude or commitment. It is a practical tool that we use in prayer for giving the Lord permission to answer the way that he wants to. For example, you may say, Lord, I want this automobile there, but we say, if it be your will. I mean, we've just learned to say that because James taught us to. He said some people go into a city 
and they say, I'm going to stay there for a year, and I'm going to make a lot of money, and I'm going to establish a business here. But he says, you don't know if you'll even live for a year. You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. And I found that there are very many times when I do not know exactly what God wants. I know what I want. And so I say, Lord, this is what I would like. But if it be your will, thy will be done. It's a very important part of our prayer life. And Jesus himself, who began his ministry by teaching us to pray that way, ended his ministry with the most poignant moment in biblical history, kneeling in that Garden of Gethsemane and praying, Lord, if it is possible, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So it is a personal prayer, but it's also a perpetual prayer that we use in our daily prayer lives to make sure that it's not what we want, but what God has ordained because he knows better than we do what will make us the happiest and what will satisfy and help us to be used the most. So that is the office where we just do daily business with the king. Now that brings us, what room do you think is next? The kitchen, right? Every castle has a kitchen. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, this is the turning point in the Lord's Prayer. If you study this prayer, there are clearly, uh, there's a division here. And up to this point, we have been praying for the things that concern God. And now suddenly, we're going to begin praying for the things that concern us. Everybody has recognized this. I was reading recently a book written in 1846 by John Seeley Hart, who was a Presbyterian. And he said, there are some striking points of likeness between the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. This is particularly true of the general structure of these two compositions. As the law was divided into two tables, the first containing our duties to God and the second containing our duties to ourselves and our fellow men, so the predictions or the petitions in this wonderful prayer point, first Godward and then manward. After praying for those things that pertain to the honor and glory of God and the universal spread of his worshiping kingdom in this world, we are to pray for those things that pertain to ourselves. In other words, when you read the Ten Commandments, the first four relate to loving God. You shall have no other gods. You shall not take his name in vain. You shall observe his Sabbath day, and so forth. So we have the prayers related to God in the Ten Commandments, but then the last six, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, has to do with other people. In the same way, the Lord's Prayer begins here with things that are important to God. And now we begin with things that are important to us, starting with the daily necessities of life. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, I think that the word bread there is a placeholder for whatever we need every day. I, you know, I certainly hope that we don't have anyone here in this room, as there are so many people in Nashville facing food insecurity. 
I think most of us have something to eat when we go home, at least maybe a box of crackers and some peanut butter in the cupboard. Uh, but there are people in the world who, for them, this is a vital prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. What I've been praying recently is give me today, Lord, the daily strength that I need. I'm battling a little bit of long COVID and battling fatigue. And there's a verse in Isaiah that says, Lord, be my strength every morning. And I've been praying that. Or we might say, Lord, give me today my daily tasks. What do you want me to do? Give me today the daily energy that I need to go about the ministry that you have given me or the work that I need to do. Lord, give me today the daily wisdom I need for dealing with the problems that I've got at work. Or Lord, give me today the daily money that I need for paying these bills that I know are going to be coming in the mail or to my account online. So we have many needs in life. But the Bible says, if the Lord is our shepherd, he will provide everything we need. And it says, and a little bit later here in Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So what do you need? If I were just to come up to you and say, what do you need this week? Relationally or financially or emotionally or spiritually, or what do you need? Then just say, Lord, give me this day by day. And then we go from the kitchen to the treasury. This is the vault. And we have to deal with issues of indebtedness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, some translations say forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our uh, trespassers. So the, the word actually means Forgive us for going over into forbidden territory. Forgive us for taking advantage of somebody's money. Forgive us for taking advantage of somebody's space. Forgive us for going over the line. And it refers to our sinfulness. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's interesting that this uh, question about whether we should say debt or trespasses goes all the way back to the first English translations of the Bible. I was just in the town in England where John Wycliffe preached, and he was the first translator, really, of the Bible into English, and he translated it with the word debts. But then William Tyndale came and became really the first noted translator with a widely um, uh, circulated translation. He used the word trans, uh, trespasses. And then here came the Book of Common Prayer, they went back to debts, but then the King James Version said trespasses, so it goes one way or the other. But the idea is our sinfulness, and we are to ask God to forgive us for those daily sins that get dust on our feet as we walk the pathway of life. When we receive Jesus Christ as Savior, then our sins are totally forgiven past, present, and future. We never need to worry about whether we're going to get to heaven because we've been totally forgiven. But as we go through life, then we accumulate dust on our feet every day. And this was the analogy that Jesus used in the upper room 
when he said, I need to wash your feet. Peter said, Lord, give me a full bath. Jesus said, you're already clean because of the word of the gospel, but I just need to clean up your feet. So we don't want anything to soil our daily walk. So we say, Lord, forgive me. There is not a day when I don't come to the Lord and say, forgive me. And, you know, we have sins that we don't even know about. But the Lord can reveal those to us. And then there are the sins we do know about. And we say, Lord, I've had a bitter heart today. I've lost my temper today. I've said something I shouldn't say today. I've done something I shouldn't have done. And the Lord is gracious to forgive. But in turn, then, we need to forgive other people. And that is not easy to do. In fact, the only way of doing it is putting your eyes on Christ and seeing how he has forgiven you. And then taking the same grace from Christ and extending it with the power of the Holy Spirit to other people. And we open our hands and we just release the bitterness. Now, it really is as simple as that. It may not be easy, but it's simple. You say, I've got a lot of bitterness towards this person. They're not going to apologize. I can't make them do what's right. But you can come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to put them in your hands and I'm just going to release the bitterness and I'm not going to carry around this anger. Help me with that. Forgive me and help me to forgive those who have sinned against me. And the Bible is full of great forgivers. It's amazing to me that Esau forgave his conniving brother Jacob who cheated him so terribly. And Joseph forgave the brothers that had betrayed him into slavery. And Job forgave his friends. And Hosea forgave the wife that was cheating on him. And the prodigal son's father came with open arms of forgiveness. Stephen forgave the executioners while they were in the act of stoning him to death. The early church forgave Saul of Tarsus. And Paul forgave John Mark, and Philemon forgave Onesimus. But the greatest example is the Lord Jesus, who not only forgave those who were torturing him and killing him, but he even forgave you and me. So that's the treasury. That's a big part of the Lord's Prayer. It is a tremendous psychological moment when we come to that petition. And then we go to the armory. And we say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, the first part of that has been explained in the same way from the beginning of history. When it says, lead us not into temptation, people say, well, God does not lead anybody into temptation. James says, the Lord does not, he cannot be tempted with sin, and he does not tempt so why does Jesus teach us to pray that? Well, the answer is that he is telling us something actively that we interpret passively. What he is saying is, Lord, do not allow us to be placed in a spot where we're going to be tempted. Or if we are being tempted, give us the power to withstand it. This has always been the understanding of this. For example, in the early 200s, Tertullian said, what Jesus meant here is do not allow us to be led into temptation. And there was a man named Cyprian 
who wrote the first known commentary on the Lord's Prayer, and he agreed with that interpretation. Augustine, or Augustine said, do not permit us to be led into temptation. And Martin Luther said, God indeed tempts no one. But we pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil and the world and the flesh may not deceive us or seduce us into misbelief or misbehavior or any other great shame or vice. And though we may be assailed by them, that we may finally overcome and gain the victory. And Calvin said, our position is that we may not be overwhelmed and conquered by any temptation, but that we may stand strong in the power of the Lord against all adverse powers to assault us. The Westminster Confession, or the Westminster Shorter Catechism, says this means, deliver us, Lord, that, that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin or support and deliver us when we are tempted. So this is clearly what Jesus had in mind. It's interesting that the current pope wanted to actually change the words of it to reflect that. I like the words the way they are, but we need to have the right interpretation. So, Lord, please help me not to put myself in a place where I am tempted. Help other people not to do that. Protect me from the wilds of the devil, from falling into his traps, and protect me from the evil one. Now, the phrase, deliver us from evil, is more accurately interpreted, forgive us, uh, protect us from the evil one. And at the end of his ministry, Jesus said in his great priestly prayer of John 17, for his disciples, he said, Lord, I pray that you will not take them out of the world, but that you will deliver them from the evil one, protect them from the evil one, there is no greater prayer for parents to pray for their children than that the Lord would protect those youngsters from the evil one. He is out to destroy all of us, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may but devour. So many traps, so many ways of messing up our lives. Lord, protect us from this evil one. That is the prayer here, and it's a powerful prayer of spiritual warfare. This is the armory of the castle. And finally, we come to the chapel. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, depending upon your version, that verse may or may not be in your Bible in Matthew chapter 6. Or it may be down at the bottom in the marginal notes. And it may say some later translations or later versions say, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. So what's up with that? Was that a part of the prayer or not? Well, it seems as though Jesus may have stopped with deliver us from the evil one. But people wanted to pray this prayer. And that isn't a good place to stop because you don't want to stop your prayer with the devil. You want to stop the prayer with the Lord. And so a very early textualist went into the Old Testament and he found these words. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And he added it 
into the manuscript. I take it as authentic inspired scripture. We know it is because it came right out of the Old Testament and it provides the ending we need for the prayer. It's found, David spoke it, in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 and 11. 1 Chronicles 29, 10 and 11. Therefore David blessed the Lord before the assembly, and he said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is heaven and is on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And on my notes here, I've circled, Yours, O Lord, is the power and the glory. Yours is the kingdom. So the writer went into this text, the words of David, took inspired scripture, added it to inspired scripture, and gave us the inspired ending to this prayer. So we begin in the nursery, we go to the observatory, we go through these various rooms, and we end up in the chapel. And just as we started the prayer giving glory to God, so we end it by saying, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. When William McKinley, the president who was assassinated, when he was shot, he was in the great music hall at the World's Fair at Buffalo, New York, and millions of people were hoping to visit that fair. And on that particular day, thousands of people were there. And he was shaking hands, and suddenly a man came up to him with a handkerchief around his hand, and he pulled away a gun, and he shot McKinley in the chest. And McKinley was stunned. He looked over to the Secret Service agent and said, have I been shot? And the agent saw the blood spreading across the white shirt. And he said, I'm afraid you have, Mr. President. And they got him, you know, all of Bedlam broke out, but they got him out of there into a hospital. And he lived for a few days and died. He was a wonderful Christian. Deeply, maybe one of the most godly leaders our nation has ever had. But over and over again, he wanted to pray the Lord's Prayer. And that gave him comfort. And when the doctors came in and they said, you're looking better today, Mr. President, he said, well, let's have prayer. And they would pray and then pray the Lord's Prayer together. And then they came in and said, things aren't looking so good, Mr. President. He said, well, let's have prayer. And he would pray the Lord's Prayer. And every day until the moment he died, he was praying the Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer for us to use, I mean, verbally, but also the spirit and the architecture of it to guide us in our prayer lives and to teach to our children as long as we live. So never forget the words of Jesus. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forget us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Will you stand for our benediction?
And now, Lord, we also say in the words of the Bible, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. And you're dismissed.